Hi everyone, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. It's been a while. June was busy, busy, busy. Um, first of all, we had uh, our, the third of our UN slash INGO training programs on influencing in Dakar with a load of people from across West Africa, which was just fab. Uh, all three have gone really well. I've been, they've been a lot of fun. Um, but then it all went very family. Um, my eldest son got married. Uh, superb wedding, absolutely beautiful. And then my youngest son had his 30th birthday, which was also a big event. Um, we even put Happy Birthday Finley up on the local cinema, the Ritzy in Brixton, which was just hilarious. Um, so I've been a bit distracted, but I'm back on the case, at least today. And then uh, next week I'm on holiday, but then from then on, I really do promise I'll focus. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Let's talk about talking through the rather a lot of links. This may be a longish one, but let's see how it goes. So we had a couple of links I liked um, posts during that period of last sort of two weeks, two and a half weeks. Um, the first, I'll just pick up a couple of things. Um, the Pope. I follow the Pope on Twitter and I suggest you do too. He's got a lot of followers, as you can imagine. And he he tweeted, I add my voice to that of the Pan-American and Pan-African Committees of Judges for Social Rights in calling on the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to adopt measures to ensure access to COVID-19 vaccines for all, especially the peoples of Africa. When the Pope lobbies on for things like access to vaccines, you know you're making progress. Um, fantastic. So it's always interesting to see what he goes up with. And then the other thing I just really liked was one of the things that happens at the giant Glastonbury Festival, 200,000 people create a city for a few days and then just melt away again, is that they all come with flags and some of those flags are personal and funny and the best one was across this great sea of people partying, just this flag which said, this is a work event, which if you follow British politics, you will realise it is a reference to what's been going on in Downing Street. And I just thought it was very, very droll and very smart flag. Hats off to whoever thought of that. Right, the next one. Is behavioural economics, or sometimes known as nudge theory, blocking the path to progress? There's been an upsurge in recent decades in tackling problems by trying to change the behaviour of individuals. Behavioural economics, nudge theory, a proliferation of government nudge units, and I was struck when uh, I saw the link to two disillusioned proponents, Nick Chater and George Lowenstein, who've written an important critique of the whole thing, contrasting what they call the individual frame, the I frame, with the system frame, the S frame, as ways of thinking and making change happen. Some extracts. They're long abstract. I'll just give you that. The rest you'll have to read the post. An influential line of thinking in behavioural science, to which the two authors have long subscribed, is that many of society's most pressing problems can be addressed cheaply and effectively at the level of the individual without, ident without modifying the system in which individuals operate. Along with, we suspect, many colleagues in both academic and policy communities, we now believe this was a mistake. Results from such interventions have been disappointingly modest, but more importantly, they have guided many, though by no means all, behavioural scientists to frame policy problems in individual, not systemic terms, to adopt what we call the I-frame rather than the S-frame. The difference may be more consequential than those who have operated within the I-frame have understood. 
in deflecting attention and support away from S-frame policies. Indeed, highlighting the I-frame as a long-established objective of corporate opponents of concerted systematic, systematic action, such as regulation and taxation. We illustrate our argument in depth with the examples of climate change, obesity, savings for retirement, and pollution from plastic waste, and more briefly for six other policy problems. We argue that behavioral and social scientists who focus on I-level change should consider the secondary effects that their research can have on S-level changes. In addition, more social and behavioral scientists should use their skills and insights to develop and implement value-creating system-level change. Really interesting, and the case studies are really good. So I do recommend the full 28-page paper. Why did I like it so much? Well, it's yet another takedown of the magic bullet school of development that says, hey, we don't need to wrestle with messy stuff like context, history, politics, power. We can fix everything with technology, microfinance, nudges, cash transfer, social enterprise, etc., etc., etc. But also, I think ex-proponents who are kind of recanting and saying this actually what we thought we was true is not true are often more convincing than die-hard opponents. So a really good paper. Next post was on the Ukraine. Uh, so be prepared for something which is not terribly uplifting. And the title is, We have already spent everything we had in our own wallets. How international aid is failing Ukrainian responders and what to do about it. And this is by Abby Stoddard, Paul Harvey and Tonya Thomas, Tonya Thomas, sorry, uh, from Humanitarian Outcomes. Over 100 days have passed since the Russian invasion of Ukraine sparked a massive humanitarian crisis, along with an outpouring of international generosity in the form of aid contributions. So why are international organisations still sitting on millions they cannot spend, while local volunteer groups in Ukraine are reaching their limits, emotionally burned out and running out of cash and equipment? Our consultations with over 60 representatives from a range of national and international organisations show that, although Ukraine is an atypical humanitarian crisis for the international humanitarian system, it has responded with typical approaches and the results have so far been deeply disappointing. The Ukraine crisis is the product of an old-fashioned international war and an example of what humanitarians call a massive sudden onset emergency more often the result of a national disaster, a natural disaster like an earthquake. The international aid agencies were not able to immediately deploy and scale up aid operations because of the dangers involved in operating an active conflict. And even those that were already involved working in Ukraine since the 2014 crisis did not have contingency plans ready for a full-scale invasion. The first responders in crises are always neighbours and local bodies. The response in Ukraine is no different, and in the first days and weeks after the invasion, the aid that people received was overwhelmingly local. In addition to local government and community organisations, small groups of volunteers began to form, ordinary people pooling their resources and responding to requests for help in their area. Six weeks in, while most international agencies were still starting up or sending assessment teams, there were an estimated 8,500 small volunteer groups and around 2,000 Ukrainian NGOs and CSOs, including 1,700 new ones in the process of registering. But the international humanitarian system in 2022 is not structured in a way that allows for rapid infusion of money and materials to local aid groups. 
Instead, the international agencies have held back their funding while they did their required due diligence. Their donors and international uh, and internal compliance frameworks have insisted they can only fund local partners that have demonstrated capacity and organisational and fiduciary mechanisms that meet certain accountability standards. In short, which look more like them, only smaller. Unfortunately, there are only a couple of hundred such organisations in Ukraine that fit that mould prior to the current crisis, and they can't be everywhere or serve as the funnel for everyone. Since 2016, the international aid communi community has committed to the Grand Bargain Agreement to localise aid, which includes the goal of providing 25% of humanitarian funding to local actors as directly as possible. As of May 20th, local organisations in Ukraine had received less than 0.1% of direct funding compared to that 25% in the Grand Bargain Agreement. That's so 250 times less for the mathematically challenged. And pass-through funding contracts were being held up by lengthy application and vetting requirements. Hence the startling conclusion of the report that the groups that are actively scaling up and becoming registered as new aid organisations have done so by finding donors mostly from outside the formal humanitarian sector. In other words, their supporters come from individuals and organisations not subject to the rigid compliance frameworks that have hamstrung the humanitarian agencies, supposedly in the business of rapid response. Absolutely damning. Something's got to change. The humanitarian system is not, as they say, fit for purpose. When it can't respond to something like the Ukraine, where there is so much money, it is clearly broke. Um, something's got to change. All right. They had some ideas for course correction. Frankly, don't hold your breath. <clears throat> Next one was a book review, Why We Fight. And my title is, you know, this is, I read the review, this year's big, big book on development, question mark. So it's a book by Chris Blackman, who I know, a professor at the University of Chicago, who's the kind of granddaddy of development bloggers and tweeters, and a really nice guy. And it's shaping up to be this year's big book. It's everywhere on my timeline. It's the FT, one of the FT books of the summer, everywhere. So I read it. Um, and usually I decide early on if I like a book or not uh, on the basis of does it say anything new and is it well written? But on both counts, I found myself veering all over the place while reading Why We Fight. On the first point, is it does it say anything new? New for whom? Most of the arguments and content seem very familiar from the world of thinking and working politically, adaptive management, systems thinking, in which I spend a lot of time. But those are mainly people working on institutional reform, good governance and so on. Maybe the difference is that Blackman has arrived at this destination along a different path, working on conflict and violence and peace building. On the second criterion, is it well written? He's a great storyteller. He writes with engaging verve about the real world, illustrating his arguments with conflicts from a huge array of time and countries. Chicago gangs, labor strikes, America versus Saddam Hussein, World War One. Athens versus Sparta, Colombia, Northern Ireland, the Cold War, India. And he's putting the time on the ground, so he's got the colour from spending months and years hanging out with gang leaders in Chicago, people working with ex-combatants in Liberia and so on. So there's this great storyteller, but he seems to be locked in stylistic combat with a rather dry evidence geek, subspecies poli-sci, political science, who feels the need to repeatedly go on these little detours into game theory, 
scatter the text with not particularly helpful pie charts and exhibit what for me seems a slightly desperate need to find quasi-scientific tests for his argument. I'm not sure how much any of that adds to his message, but it may help convince sceptics. He does a very good job summarising his main messages in a series of lists. You can almost hear the lecturer, you know, working through his PowerPoint with his well-honed arguments, and they are very good. So his first point is you have to remember that war is the exception, not the norm. Enemies much prefer to loathe one another in peace. Great writing and engage in bargaining to prevent costly outright conflict. However, there are five main reasons why group violence does sometimes occur. The first is unchecked rulers and interests, unaccountable leaders who might gain from war but bear none of the costs. Second is intangible incentives, the human desire for vengeance, status, freedom or combating injustice. Third is uncertainty. If you don't know quite what's going on, you may call a bluff and then find out that was a mistake. Fourth is commitment problems. You may want to launch preemptive strikes on a rising enemy because you don't trust it not to attack you when it gets big and strong. So you get in there first. And the fifth is misperceptions. Overconfident leaders, about, you know, overconfident about their own strength or overconfident about their enemy's weakness uh, can lead to big mistakes. So although it was written before the current conflict, all of those have echoes of the Ukraine war. Unchecked ruler? Mm-hmm. Desire for freedom? Yep. Calling NATO's bluff with a preemptive strike? Mm-hmm. Misperceptions of military strength and resolve? Tick, tick, tick. So, you know, he's certainly been proved right by events. He also, interestingly, argues there are a number of false causes. Things like poverty, scarcity, natural resources, climate change, ethnic fragmentation, polarisation, injustice and arms which may add fuel to the raging fire, but probably did not ignite the fighting in the first place. He sees this as a big challenge to NGOs and activists arguing the opposite. I'm not so sure it matters if you know something adds fuel or something is the spark. It's still a really bad thing and you need to tackle it. I'm not sure quite whether his distinction is, is that important, really. The second part of the book explores why some societies, most societies really, remain stable, peaceful and successful. Not because they're free of rivalry and tension, they're everywhere, but because, and here we have another list, they have learned to manage them by building interdependence between potential rivals, setting up checks and balances, rules and enforcement and interventions. And these tackle one or more of the causes of breakdown identified in the first part. And the last third of the book I really liked, which provides recommendations for peace building, among which he says, don't try to simplify complex problems or ignore political history. Forget big ideas and grand utopian plans. They're riddled with failure. Don't try to replicate too much because success is often context specific. Go for structured trial and error. Try a few pilot ideas in the first couple of years. Discard the ones that don't work. Then do piecemeal tinkering and constant review to find the best impact. Don't design a project all at once and then barrel on through with mediocrity. Push power and accountability down. Central state authorities always try to resist this, both because the people at the front line of conflict know best about how to resolve it and because central states need strong checks and balances on their power. So as you can see, if you've read my blog regularly, a lot of this is straight out of the thinking and working politically playbook, but it's eminently sensible and it's great to see applied afresh to a whole new field. Highly recommended. <clears throat> Drink of water, hold on. There is a lot to get through. 
Next post was about Latin America. So I picked up my Economist, as I do every week, and they had a special report on Latin America. I was very happy because back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, I was a Latin Americanist. I was reading everything I could get hold of. I was writing books on market economics, child rights, or even embarrassingly, an introduction to the entire continent. Wouldn't do that now, probably. Um, and a lot of what I've thought and done since then has been shaped by those years. But now, sitting in London, you just get scraps, you know? Um, the old election, the old sort of depressing report from the Amazon. So it was great to get a special report, which I thought it was it was classic economist special report, you know, a combination of some great stats, some good arguments, and some things you disagreed with, which is pretty much, uh, um, you know, why I like The Economist. So here's some excerpts. COVID, with just 8% of the world's population, the region has suffered 28% of the officially recorded deaths from the disease. COVID has starkly exposed the fragilities of government in Latin America. The economy. When COVID-19 arrived, the region was already suffering from stubborn and deep-rooted problems that the pandemic merely made worse. Economically, the 2010s were a lost decade, echoing that of the 1980s. Far from converging with richer, richer countries, Latin America was falling further back. Politics. This long period of relative economic stagnation has brought frustration over lack of opportunities, especially for younger Latin Americans who have more education than their parents, but whose expectations of good jobs have also often been dashed. And this new social frustration has coincided with a marked political deterioration. But also, politics is increasingly dysfunctional and unstable, suffering from fragmentation, the weakening of political parties, and polarisation uh, to the extremes. These are ills of the democratic world in general, but they are peculiarly acute in Latin America. Inequality. In a report last year, the UN Development Programme highlighted Latin America's toxic combination of high inequality and low growth, which it says are caused in part by a concentration of economic and political power and in part by widespread political, criminal and social violence, and in part by systems of social protection and labour market regulation, whose very design introduces economic distortions. Alarm bells whenever The Economist talks about economic distortions. Protests. The most dramatic sign of grievances is massive and sometimes violent street protests, widely dubbed social explosions. These occurred in Brazil in 2013 and 2015, spread to Venezuela in 2017, Nicaragua in 2018, Ecuador and Chile in 2019, and to Colombia in 2021, as well as to Cuba in the same year and to Peru in 2020 and 22. What is striking about this is that Chile, Colombia, Peru had until recently been three of Latin America's more successful countries. Poverty had fallen. So in most Latin American countries did income inequality in the 2000s. But the protests were about multidimensional forms of inequality. This was interesting. A sense of unequal and unfair opportunities and access to public services from parks to justice. They expressed, too, a deep-rooted popular mistrust of institutions, political parties and leaders. Lots more like this. It's really a very good piece. Um, and uh, I'd better stop now just because it's taking too long. But the hats off to the author, Mike Reed. Um, who's a you know lifelong Latin American Latin Americanist? He stuck with it, unlike me. Um, uh, and uh, you don't have to agree with everything, but it's really worth reading. Last post I think of the of the week was uh, by an Oxfammer, Amy Croom, who got in touch, 
And she wanted to write about, can INGOs really separate money from power? And this is a big question for me because INGOs are in a position of power with respect to local partners. They have the money and they are distributing it and giving it out, but they want to empower local partners you know, uh, through this whole process of localization and decolonization. And I think it's a moot point. Is it actually possible to separate money and power? And this is what Amy was writing about. So let me just read her post. Localization advocates have been pushing for years for humanitarian funding to flow directly from donors to NGOs closest to the crisis. Refugee-led organisations, women's rights organisations, national and local actors, rather than to international NGOs and UN agencies, who often then subcontract those organisations in the global south to deliver the work. Back to the grand bargain, commitment to direct fund 25% of all humanitarian finance to local actors. But for almost all local actors, direct funding is not accessible from big donors. In 2020, it was just 3% of overall humanitarian funding. Now, this raises an issue for organisations like Oxfam. Those organisations get their funding via us. And that means that we have this new donor-recipient relationship as an intermediary. So here Amy is exploring what Oxfam's experience of uh, has been with being an intermediary. So it depends on the partner, the local humanitarian system, the history of our country programme and the nature of the crisis. In each context, we try and reflect on our value add rather than become a subcontractor. How can we complement the existing local humanitarian system? What can we offer our partners? And the answers vary widely. Opening doors. When there are funding opportunities that can be accessed by local actors directly and they want to pursue such opportunities, we step back, although maybe supporting them, by introducing them to the donor and helping them develop their proposals. In Somalia, for example, we reviewed and edited some funding applications to donors for partners. Our value added here is our potential connection to donors and our fundraising expertise, which we made available. As equals within consortia, in many country offices, especially where there is a strong and vibrant civil society and the humanitarian crisis is long or recurrent, Oxfam has invested and supported the emergence of consortia of local, action, local actors. In these contexts, Oxfam, as an intermediary, may receive the funding from the institutional donor, but Oxfam does not determine the work alone. Which funding opportunities to go for, how to divide up the work amongst partners, the focus of the response is decided together. Quality partnerships as our default. In many humanitarian contexts, partnering is our default way of working. Through investing in our own operating models, funding mechanisms and capacities, our staff and ways of working, we have built relationships with local partners, including many women's rights organisations and refugee-led organisations that are substantial. Our partners are involved or leading in project design and proposal development. They're involved in decision-making throughout implementation and evaluations. But beyond that, we determine together how to divide up work based on our comparative advantages and lay out how Oxfam can support their capacities in ways that work for them. In South Sudan, local actors are now co-designing programmes with Oxfam. In Colombia, 80% of our humanitarian funding is shared with partners, many of whom are women's rights organisations. Delivering alongside local actors. So while Oxfam's overall humanitarian approach is increasingly defined by partnering and supporting local-led responses, a significant part of our work is still delivering direct is still delivered directly 
by Oxfam teams in crisis settings. This is often in parallel to partnership or consortium work. Oxfam brings an ability to deliver a big response, technical knowledge on um, water and uh, sanitation and, and hygiene, wash, protection, cash, and food security, to embed gender across all work and more. That is our value add, but we try and do so in ways that complement the overall humanitarian system. For example, by leveraging capacity uh, strengthening opportunities and by actively participating in humanitarian coordination structures and creating more space for local actors to participate and lead within these. Do we have it all figured? Of course not. We still have a long way to go, but we are moving. We hope insights into our journey can help other intermediaries on there and encourage donors to incentivize us all on this shared objective. So Oxfam is going to be publishing more on this. And it's quite a nice antidote to this depressing 3%, 4%, 2% statistic that even though that's the, a tiny percentage going directly to NGOs, INGOs, if you, you, know, if you take uh, what uh, Amy is saying as typical, are actually making some progress in trying to improve the quality of being an intermediary so that local organisations get more money and more say. So that's like a, a reasonably optimistic way to end the week. I'm off to go on holiday. I'll be in touch in a couple of weeks. Uh, have a great weekend. Bye.